You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. I'm JR. Uh, rather, I should say, I'm going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to, because this is another one of those podcasts that I'm recording ahead of time in order to go in the August hiatus when I shan't be around for a few weeks and I'm all by myself. So, actually, actually, uh, uh, hi, hi, JR. I'm, 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 I'm here too. If you want, I, uh, we can talk about Doctor Who as well, maybe. Stephen. Yeah. Oh, oh well, that's nice. That means yeah, I don't me. have to do it yeah. by myself. Yeah, there you go. Oh, Stephen, Stephen, I've got yeah. a question for you. Oh, all right, all right. Should there be more death in current Doctor Who? Hmm. You know. Oh goodness, that's a good question. Um. Well, this was one of the questions from our one hundredth podcast, and it was still sitting in my head. And seeing as you're there, I thought I'd ask. You know what I? The thing about death in the classic series is that it was sort of treated frivolously. You know, like no one had families or loved ones or anything like that. And and now the new series sort of focuses on you know that that people have such like have families and everything. And I imagine if you kill someone, you also put a lot of stress on their family and give them a lot of grief. And so I, I start to think that you know every every death means something in new Doctor Who as opposed to maybe the old Doctor Who where it didn't quite as much. So I think if you increased death in the new Doctor Who, it might be a little bit grim. Adric! Whoa, who's that? Hi, this is Josh. Josh! Well, well, my (laughs) God, this is turning into quite a surprise. Josh, what do you think? Should there be more death in, in current Doctor Who? Absolutely. (laughs) <laughs> Stephen's just made this brilliant point about, you know, how current Doctor Who, modern Doctor Who is more about the emotional relationships. And so therefore, you know, uh, f- filling it full of dead bodies wouldn't be like in the old series where it's just, oh, there's another body. But these days, a lot of dead bodies would mean something. And here you are saying, yes, well, give us more bodies. Absolutely. Uh, well, I don't. I think that death in New New Who is a lot more like uh, the person dies by being hit with a ray that makes them disappear. Um, Briefly, before <laughs> they come back. But I, I think I think that um, I think they're very cognizant of of not showing too much. And uh, to be honest with you, I don't think that they really did in the classic series either. Um, they they would. Hit a shoot a ray gun and the guy would just you know go over. Uh, yeah. But but you know I think that that it it, it depends on the situation. I bring I bring up Adric uh, in the at, at the beginning when I when I dropped in. Um, mm. The death of Adric actually w- was uh, you know not bloody but certainly had an effect on uh, well 
well, effect on the viewers, not so much on uh, Janet Fielding and, and Sarah Sutton. Yeah. Who laughed through through the whole end of that. But <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a not a bad point, though. In the old series, yeah, every now and again, there'd be stories, mostly those written by Eric Sayward. I suspect we may come back to him. Where there'd be a huge death toll, but you, you know you wouldn't see half the deaths, and even if you did see deaths, it's just guys falling over in the background almost. And in the unit stories as well, I suppose you just have disposable soldiers, a bit like in Star Trek with the red shirts, eh? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and that's what you don't really have in the new series. In fact, specifically in the Stephen Moffat stories, I don't suppose you have a lot of red shirts at all because. The Stephen Moffat stories tend to be very small casts, don't they? And not many extras. And not many deaths. No. Well, there's nobody to kill. (laughs) And if if you do kill them, you've only got to bring them back afterwards anyway. You send them back in time instead. Do you see it... Josh, do you see it as a problem, though, that you can have a period of Doctor Who where it's less about that kind of a threat and more about, say, maybe a more intellectual threat than a physical threat. No, I don't see a problem with that at all. Um, As a matter of fact, death is only a tool just so you can feel some kind of emotion or fear. Uh, If you Mm. can do it in in an alternative means and a much more intelligent means, it it actually works better. Uh, Empty Child, uh, Dr. Dance is a great example. Yeah. Of how that all works, uh, and you don't really know at the end. They all survive, Rose. For once, they all survive. Actually, that's a that's a great example because in that story, the threat is you will be turned into some kind of gas mask wearing zombie. But actually, none of the characters in that story know what it means to be a gas mask wearing zombie. You might find that life as a gas mask wearing zombie is every bit as fulfilling as your life before you became. Do you know what I'm it saying? It makes it very hard to have a cup of tea, JR. Oh, what? Oh, hello, Mark. You're joining us as well, are you? Oh, I, yeah. Uh, <laughs> just made a brew if you fancy one. Uh, yeah, I'll definitely go for that. Oh, thanks Excellent. very much, Mark. Uh, I've got some custard creams as well if you want some. I will forego the custard creams. All right, then. Only on account of the fact that I usually do so much talking, I wouldn't have time to eat. But now, with three of you here, hopefully I'll be doing a lot less talking. Hopefully. Mark, you and I, we've already answered the question of death in Doctor Who. We have a bit, yeah. Yes, on the 100th podcast. Anybody got I any... think it means more in the in the new series. Yeah, you're because right. Because it's a bit more spread out and you don't have it happening every week. When someone dies, it actually has more of an effect, in my opinion. And like Stephen said, you there's so much more emotional impact because you know the characters better as yeah, exactly. people. Mm-hmm. And as Josh said, uh, you know, in in the old series you had like Adric and say Katarina and uh, Sarah Kingdom, but now when that happens, it doesn't just have to be a companion that can have that much of an effect on the audience watching. You know, Linda with a Y. Mm-hmm. She yeah. was only in the one episode, but when she died, we all felt it, didn't we? Yeah, well, I I actually have a question on, on that. Uh, I was asked a question recently, I'll have you know, and, and it, it is thus. It's a death of a companion. Can it be done today in the same way it happened to Adric? Not living not living to death or like something similar like the pawns, but a companion being killed while traveling. Can that actually be done in the new series, do you think? Uh, you know, 
I don't think it can. Mm. I think because, especially with Stephen Moffat, now another showrunner might do it slightly differently, but I would say, especially with Stephen Moffat, his Doctor Who is very much aimed. It's just like Doctor Who's always been in that anybody can watch it and anybody can enjoy it. But I think Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who is very deliberately much more aimed to be enjoyable to tens and unders. And I think that killing off a companion, somebody that we get that close to and know that much about, I think that would be too much for the sort of seven and eight year olds these days. Mm-hmm. I don't think also, they could do I think it. Back, yeah. Certainly if you look at the eighties when they had Adric Nissa and Tegan, you didn't really felt feel like you knew that much about them. They were just kind of characters that appeared every week, but you didn't have that sort of depth of character that you get in the new series. You know, they don't flesh out the backstory. So I think it's sounds harsh, but it's easier to bump off someone if you in do. that sort of era than <laughs> yeah. it is to, to try and do it in the modern Well, era. that was the thing about Adric. He had this yeah. great story coming in where you found yeah. out loads about him coming in, but mm-hmm. by the time you get to his third and fourth story, he's just yeah. the generic character who asks yeah. the questions and gets in trouble. Mm. I cut someone off there, sorry. Well, I, and and you've the base of the companions of the olden days, they were made orphans, therefore their only choice was to fly in the TARDIS. You know, yeah. all of Adric's family died, more or less, or left the planet without him mm-hmm. in uh, full circle. So, like, okay, I guess you're here now, and so we don't have anyone to answer to, or Vicky, the same, you know, the same story, or even Dodo. You know, to to pick three random companions mm. out of the hat. Well, her death was pretty, pretty, <laughs> pretty, pretty grim. In the <laughs> books, <laughs> yeah. Well, Josh. Also, I'll just say this: uh, that in today's Doctor Who, the companion becomes almost as important as the Doctor when it when it's sort of the identification yeah. of the series. Uh, they are introduced in a similar way as a doctor is. They they are, um, I I just mean in real life. Like we we want to know who the new companion is, and then we meet that person, and and uh, we meet the real person, and they show mm. up at Comic Con, and they show up at you know they they become uh, just as important. They're they're in the beginning title sequence as a star of the show. Uh, yeah, for, they're much more engaged with the audience, for, versus versus in the old days, as as you said, uh, as uh, you know, just surplus to requirements. They they are the generic companions. So I think it's it, the companions a lot more important today than they used to be. That's a brilliant point because <clears throat> we, what we're essentially saying is you can no more kill off a companion than you can kill off the Doctor. Yep. Exactly. Right. Yeah. No, that's... Okay, I think we've answered that one then. Okay, I've got another question for you guys. Uh, Can you, between the three of you... I'm going to come to this now, see? Why not? Here's another question from our 100th podcast, but instead of putting it all to one person, I'll put it to all three of you. Can you, between the three of you, come up with a list of five good things about Eric Sayward? Ooh! (laughs) (laughs) I notice how you've, you've engineered this so that you don't have to answer. Exactly, you've deflected this one. I, I've got, I've I've got one. I've got one. This. Actually, no, you did. You did have to answer. I got, this I got yeah. one. I got. Go on, Josh. He brought back Robert Holmes. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, snap. That was one of mine. Um, he had gorgeous hair. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I can take that. Oh, go on then. 
Right, that's two. Speaking of someone who has no hair, I think you know I'm allowed to comment on that. He he wrote uh, he wrote great action adventure se- uh, stories. I find like Earthshock and Resurrection of the Daleks. Mm, that goes no. back to our lots of death. Uh... <laughs> I know, but I know that's why I brought it up. I d- I yeah okay. I'm not so sure they're as well written as they are well directed. Those two stories, to be fair, uh, that's true. Okay, he did um, help popularize the Cybermen again. Again, yeah. I'm not a Cyberman fan, so. But okay, uh, <laughs> I will let you have those two because no, otherwise you're going to be really struggling. You could also, besides, you could also argue that JNT was the one who asked for the Cybermen to come back. Oh, that's a possibility because, of course, Eric Saywood wasn't actually established as the script editor when he wrote Earthshock, was he? Did. Did, does anybody know? Did JNT ask Sayward to write a Cyberman story, or did Sayward ask JNT if it was okay if he wrote? I it? know Sayward was, was a huge fan of the Cyberman. I think it was JNT because I think it was. it was actually Davison who suggested to JNT, "Why don't we bring the Cyberman back?" And I think that sort of set off bells. And and I think he, yeah. he sought out Sayward on the basis of his uh, of his visitation script, wasn't it? Yes, and, and probably then because actually when. Saywood wrote the visitation. He didn't know an awful lot about Doctor Who at all, so you'd have to assume that he became a Cyberman fan because of the fact that he wrote Earthshock rather than mm. the other way around. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. That would make sense. In fact, I remember reading somewhere that when he'd finished the visitation, JNT gave him a load of um, videotapes of. Uh, let's see, it wouldn't be Tomb of the Sidemen, but... <laughs> revenge, that's about it. Yeah, Ooh. Revenge. No, there must have been more than that. Probably the odd episodes from the Wheel Moon in Space. Base and the Wheel in Space, yeah. I, I, oh, Wheel in... I don't know. Was Well, maybe Episode 6 was, was there. Episode 3 certainly wasn't found until 1983. No. And, the Moon uh, Base was there, wasn't it? Was there any of the invasion around? Yeah, I think I th- it was. I think they were, yeah. 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 But, I mean, it wasn't like they were, you know... Easily available. Well, I suppose they were easily available because they they pilfered clips uh, throughout the JNT era. So yeah, yeah. But the other thing as well, of course, is as enemies go, the Cybermen are fairly malleable. In that, if you take away the backstory, they're generic invading robots. But if you're going to write a story wherein the villain is not as important as what you want to do with your characters. You just throw the Cybermen in the background, look great, uh, stomp around killing people, powerful, uh, something to have going on in the background while you're telling the story of the characters who are arguing and stabbing each other in the back, you know, in the foreground. Mm. If you, so I've got another one for you, JR. Oh, go on. He persuaded Terence Sticks to do The Five Doctors, which could have been awful in the wrong hands. That's another snap moment, Mark. Ah... That'll do. That's five reasons, and that was quite nice because that came up on the five doctors. So, oh, I was going to also point out that oh. his uh, his part fourteen of Trial of a Time Lord is going to be really good by the sounds of it. <laughs> Something oh. we never saw. <laughs> so his intentions were good, and also I'll, I'll I'll point out that he gave Doctor Who drama, uh, not on screen but off screen uh, during. So basically, he that's good. His um, yeah. his his um, tempestuous relationship with J and T was more or less the inspiration for uh, Ed Stradling's brilliant documentary Trials and Tribulations. There you go. There you go. Him. There we are. That'll do it. Gave you seven. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do very nicely indeed. 
Uh, anybody else got a question they'd like to ask? Yeah, so they, that were that had nothing to do with his work on screen or anything else. Just the outside drama actually has a benefit to to the Doctor Who universe. But you know what? You, that is very true because the eighties is by far and away the most interesting period of behind the scenes development on Doctor Who, isn't it? Well, we might know about it. I'm sure that the mid sixties around the John Wiles. Uh, William Hartnell oh, yeah. time and, and uh, you know, towards the beginning of the Patrick Troughton time is probably incredibly interesting, but, but not very well written about. Possibly, yeah, you might be right. I just think that when something's not being necessarily terribly successful, it gives rise to more of a fascination with the reasons why. Oh, possibly. agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Well, well, on on the you know we've talked about death and and Eric Sayward violence that sort of thing. I think along those lines, I have this question to ask: Has slapstick comedy ever worked in Doctor Who? <laughs> Mark, <laughs> you go first. Well, well um, I am a self-confessed fan of season seventeen. Right. I think that's a pretty good demonstration of what you can achieve with slapstick comedy. <laughs> I think it works, but then I think I'm in the minority on that. I think there's room for everything and anything in Doctor yeah. Who. As long as it's in... Within reason. Yeah, as long as it's in service to telling a story, and as long as it, rather than taking you out of that story. Yeah, so that takes instance, away the Feast of Stephen, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, well, yes and no. For, for, for a Christmas episode, for a Christmas runaround on Christmas Day... I think if you, I think if you watched or listened to Feast of Stephen as part of the ongoing story of Dalek's master plan, you're in trouble, aren't you? Oh yeah, it does not <laughs> allow the story to go forward. But slapstick, actually, uh, Stephen, you and I just talked about this. The um, the gunfighters and um, the Romans. The mm. fair amount of slapstick comedy yeah. in both of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's well established at the beginning of this, at the beginning of Doctor Who, that that there is room for uh, this level of comedy within within the show. And it, it's just another meme that the show can take on. Uh, would it work today? That, to some degree it does. I think that uh, Matt Smith actually has a slapstick uh, comedy aspect to his character. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. So... It, it it does work. Um, I don't think that it can uh, linger when it's there, uh, like it did in season seventeen. Probably lingered a little bit too long, and they had to pull it back. But but overall, yeah, it does. It works, and it as long as it as long as it serves the story that's being told, because you can tell a variety of different types of story within the format. As long as they as long as they have. That basic starting point of the Doctor and Companion arrive somewhere, something needs solving, they're the ones who solve it. As long as you keep as long as you keep that element intact, you can pretty much do anything. And while you probably shouldn't go and do an out and out comedy story that has mm. nothing else, look at um Unicorn and the Wasp. I know you're not a big fan of the Unicorn and the Wasp, Stephen, but I think that's a hugely enjoyable episode. And there's plenty of funny in that. I think I think the the one scene that you're referring to is the one scene that I really really enjoy. That's the um, the 
Harvey Wallbanger scene in the um, in, in the, the kitchen, yeah. and and that's mm-hmm. mostly down to how Graham Harper directed it with like two cameras shooting it. The the spontaneity was there. I don't know if if an outright comedy would work as well in that regards. I I, it, I think I think the Moffat era sort of sort of weaves their comedy in to the stories yeah. more so than you know Unicorn of the Wild yeah. was intended to be a comedy from the outset. I think it works at its best when they can mix up the comedy and the chills as well. You get something like Blink, which is quite a scary episode, but there are really funny moments in that as well, and it, it heightens both the humour and the scariness. Mm-hmm. If you go back to the Philip Hinchcliffe era, there's a lot of melodrama. I mean, you look at something like Brain of Morbius and the performances and the writing in that story, it's very arch. And, you know, melodrama is only a very narrow wire's breadth away from being slapstick comedy, essentially. Well, Philip Philip Maddock could be playing that, you know, playing that part in that story for laughs if he just turned up the performance just a slight bit from where it already is. So maybe not to Graham Crowden levels. Well, I, no, perhaps. I, no, I'm not saying he should have, <laughs> but I'm saying it's yeah, it's, it's no, that close. That. You're really not very far away. I, I think Josh. I, yeah, I, I think that they do fit in a lot of the, a lot of humor in the Philip Inchcliffe era. It's just yeah. it's, it's in certain spots. I mean, even in Brain of Morbius, Chop Suey, the Galactic Emperor. I yeah. mean, they they do <laughs> they do fit it in. It's just it's. It's not you just got to be careful, right, About how you do it, right? In other words, if if uh, uh, we we've been talking about season seventeen, I I think that the scale started to go much higher into the humor versus mm. in the in the Philip Hinchcliffe era where it was it was used sparingly but but extremely well. The comedy spring mm-hmm. on the TARDIS console in <laughs> yeah. uh, Horns of Nymon, that's the kind of thing you can't have because. Because that that breaks down the fourth wall barrier. That's not a sound you associate with the TARDIS, nor would you ever associate with the TARDIS. So as soon as I you do hear still that, still kind of love it though. Yeah, but as soon as you hear that sound, the entire audience at home goes groans and stops watching. Yeah, the thing the story. is, though, the following season they go too far the other way in trying to go super serious, and then mm. all the joy is sucked out of it. So you've got two extremes. It's finding that level, isn't it? Yeah, finding a balance. Okay, shall I uh, shall I throw another story, another question at everybody? Sure. Yeah. Since we started on such a light note with the uh, <laughs> question about death in Doctor Who, um, oh, I know, I've got a question that takes us all the way in the other direction. But no, since we've just been talking about Philip Hinchcliffe, what I want to know is why have Big Finish got Philip Hinchcliffe in to uh, do a bit of a showrunner job? Why has he not replaced Stephen Moffat on the television? (laughs) (laughs) He's back. There's no reason not to have him back on the telly. Well, because the big finish is more interested in recapturing the era uh, Mm. of, you know, the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth doctors. And then they are necessarily, you know, creating new, uh, an entirely new era of doctor who. So what better way than to re- reunite a doctor and a classic companion, in this case Leela, with the producer of that era. I, I think that makes perfect sense. On a more serious note, mm-hmm. do you think Philip Hinchcliffe could, you know, if he was offered the role on television? Hmm. Has it, I mean, I, I don't follow... Philip Hinchcliffe's career that no. that, that closely. I mean, his. I mean, he is in his 
sixties, maybe even seventies. Yeah. Has he retired? I mean, his is is he say okay? Welcome back to TV, Philip. Uh, you are you know you're approaching your seventieth birthday or whatever. Uh, <laughs> please overrun the the BBC's flagship franchise and fly all all over the world to uh, promote it and on a world tour and write all the episodes. I mean, that is a lot to do. The well, thing is, no. the first thing he'd have to do is ditch Murray Gold and uh, get Dudley Simpson. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Him. Bring back Dudley Simpson. Yes, he's ninety three <laughs> and up for it. <laughs> but you know. The thoughts struck me. Philip Hinchcliffe could take over their sort of executive. I'm not saying I'm seriously suggesting this no. should happen, but I, I could imagine Philip Hinchcliffe as the showrunner, but not writing anything, much as when Robert Holmes. So Philip Hinchcliffe says, "Right, let's do a season about this," and gets his right hand man, whomsoever that might be, to uh, write the first and last episodes, and then between them they sort of get the rest of the writers in to do the stuff in between and fill in the gaps. Well, the, in- I don't know. the, the interesting thing is, is that if you look at the Philip Hinchcliffe era, Robert Holmes wrote a fair bit of, of, of those, of those stories. It, it's, it's not, it's more the Robert Holmes. Era. It really is. Um, it's almost like Robert Holmes was the Stephen Moffat of that era. So, mm. uh, I think if we're going to examine that question, we should not examine the question as if, you know, the reality of Philip Hinchcliffe being 70 years old, et cetera, et cetera. We should examine that question as if Philip Hinchcliffe was 30 like he was when he was doing it. And could he, Philip Hinchcliffe of that era, uh, run the show today? Um, with, with, with the, with the, um, the ideas that, that he had. Uh, going along uh, that era, which was uh, essentially taking some of these horror memes and 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 uh, well, making it work. Yet the interesting thing is the story that they had lined up, the, the first script they had lined up to be written for season fifteen, if uh, Hinchcliffe and Holmes had been there then, was kind of an Alan Quatermain takeoff, which is not a million miles away from the sort of Indiana Jones thing that Stephen Moffat likes to throw in. Mm-hmm. So the Philip Hinchcliffe of season 15 might not have been a million miles away from the Stephen Moffat we have today in terms of the plots. Well, there's a vampire story, certainly, that they were going to do that, that was replaced yeah. by Horror Fang Rock, right? Yeah. But but a lot of, I mean, we've discussed season 15 before, but season 15 is like kind of half and half. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of Hinchcliffian type uh, stories within season well. 15. There's a lot. There's a lot of Holmesian. Let's face it. Yes. Yeah. It's the Holmes influence that exists there. That that's the difference between like you know as we're talking here. I'm thinking like what, what are the roles like if of of a producer like Philip Hinchcliffe now? Like what would he be? If, what is the actual, um, you know, the comparison? He'd be Julie Gardner, wouldn't he? Yeah, sort of. I, I think he producer, would. Yeah, he would be that as opposed to the the RTD who would sort of be the Robert Holmes, even though. Yeah. The Robert Holmes would sort of be the the face of Doctor Who. It's different. It's entirely different now. It's it's tough to sort of draw that because yeah. there's no direct parallels between the jobs in the classic series and the jobs in the new series. Look at the actual job title of script editor now. It's not even close to what it was back mm. in the olden days. No, it certainly isn't. Okay, so Philip Hinchcliffe. Yeah. Well, let's. Well, while we're on the topics of uh, of of showrunners, what the the next Doctor Who showrunner uh, is it? Heir apparent, Mark Gatiss? Is it Neil Gaiman or someone else? I mean, who do we think might be the next one? 
Well, that's an interesting question. Mark, who do you think might be the next one? Uh, well, I did mention, I think this was actually on the 100th when we had all of our questions. I Probably, mentioned, yeah. I think you brought this up. Um, Phil Ford would be a quite a nice outside bet. Actually, I, I, he's got I, a, quite a bit of experience. I predicted Phil Ford uh, like two years ago or something like that. So if it comes to pass, then then I'm absolutely brilliant. <laughs> it was probably me listening to Mostly Harmless Cutaway that put it into my mind. I rem- but yeah, I think he's got all the credentials for it. This is one of those uh, a Gallifrey, when we were at the Gallifrey One uh, convention, I think I had that conversation with somebody who the next showrunner might be and... Phil Ford had just happened to be in the room at the time, I think, and I think I happened to mention it. So it's it's it would stand to reason it, that it comes down to two people, I believe. It comes down to Mark Gatiss, um, yeah. who who probably could do has done several things in Doctor Who up till now, uh, writing, acting, etc. Uh, would would only stand to reason that he he might be he might be offered the role. Uh, but Phil Ford has done it before. I think there's a couple of things that mitigate against Mark Gatiss, and that is... Okay, let's compare the two of them. Phil Ford, can he run a show? And the simple answer to that question is, yeah, he's proven that with... But he's not, strictly speaking, a showrunner on Sarah Jane and Wizards vs. Aliens quite in the way that Stephen Moffat is because he is basically under the aegis of um, Russell T. Davis. Mm-hmm. But he proves with those shows that he knows how to write the beginning and the end of a series and the through story that goes with it. He knows how to organise these things. Mark Gatiss only has experience of this kind of thing in conjunction with someone else on Sherlock. I don't think there's... Or League of Gentlemen the same, working with other people... I don't think Mark Gatiss has proven that he can shoulder the responsibility by himself. And the other thing... The problem is, he's such a lovable guy, and he's such a huge fan, and you want him to do well, but... The BBC aren't giving jobs out on the basis of lovability. Well, that's what I'm saying. You know, he's... And the other thing is... He's a fan favourite, but I don't think he's quite got what it takes. We've said before, I think, that we think the person who takes over the show has to be somebody who has experience of working on it, because if you get somebody brand new in and they mm. come in and make a disaster, you know, that is millions of pounds down the drain and potentially the end of the series. The BBC aren't going to... The BBC aren't stupid. They're not going to bring somebody in that they don't know can do the job by already having been involved in the job. And as we all know, Stephen Moffat uses mostly people who already run other shows to write the episodes in between... But the second thing I was going to say mitigates against Mark Gatiss is that with Mark Gatiss working on Sherlock with Stephen Moffat, that would almost be as if there was a line of succession there. And I don't think the BBC would want to establish a line of succession because that narrows down your options afterwards. Whereas Phil Ford, obviously he's worked with Russell T. Davies on these other series, but the succession has been broken by having Stephen Moffat in between. So what you're doing there is alternating a succession, if you're going to call it a succession. You're, in other words, developing people who can take over in order that you can choose from those people the one who does take over. Whereas if it was Mark Gatiss, it would be like, oh, I work with a guy who's doing it now, so I'm the next one in. And of course, if Mark Gatiss isn't then working with somebody else afterwards, the line of succession becomes broken, and all of a sudden you have a dilemma. 
Mm. Steven. Mm. I think you are... Um, what, what, sorry. Uh, what is Steven? I, I haven't heard Steven. Yeah, I was going to say. Well, I'm just the one asking the questions, you understand. But uh, <laughs> no. at, it was interesting because there was... It was it was there was chatter, uh, we'll say, at Gallifrey One, uh, and uh, you know I don't know if it was it was coming from Gallifrey One to the fact that Phil Ford was there, um, <clears throat> and I, I to that end I kind of say oh, I wonder what he would sort of think about it. And of course, you know Phil's Phil is lovable and and cheerful and happy and will will happily answer anything that he feels he can, but he'll also will not show his cards at all because <laughs> um, in the past I, I think I've interviewed him many times, but like three specific times I just remember like asking him about something and then literally like the the next week news would come out of something that he never even hinted at. You know, he's really yeah. good at keeping secrets. But uh, to that end, I actually when I when I was interviewing with at the last Gallifrey one, I I sort of I sort of hinted. I sort of asked him questions, not saying, hey, if, if you were showrunner, how would you run the show or anything like that? But I kind of went towards that just to hear what he said. Because the fact is, he is writing episode two of a new series, of, of a new Doctor. You know, and that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's not been done before in the new series. It's always been sort of the showrunner wanting to establish his mark on the show and, and writing. You know, that, that first adventure is never a representative of how right. your new doctor is going to be. Cause it's basically, you have to, it's a, it's a show opening number, you know, it's sort of showcase all his various talents. And then that second episode, but the character beds in exactly. And Phil Ford is, has been given that task to sort of establish that character. So I find, I find the placement of that, uh, is his story, uh, in series eight, very intriguing. What would you think? Stephen and Josh, because I think Mark and I already went over with it, over this in our hundredth. But what would either of you two think of Phil Ford as the showrunner on Doctor Who? Would you like that? Do you think? Oh, I don't. I don't know. Oh, go ahead, Josh. Go. Uh, so I think that uh, Phil Ford would be a tremendous showrunner for Doctor Who. Um, I, I. I think I think he would definitely take the show into a different direction. I think it would be, um, I think it'd be a scarier show. Um, I think that uh, he would he would definitely take it along a different line. I I don't think he would uh, um, take uh, the soapy nature of the show uh, and and utilize that. I think he would he would take it down a different line. Although he has experience of that on Sarah Jane, of course. Yeah, but I, I think that uh, I, I'm, I like to point more towards Waters of Mars and that approach, mm. uh, which which to me is maybe one of the scariest Doctor Who's uh, in the new series that was ever mm -hmm. that was ever written for the new series. I, I think that um, I think that Phil really knows how to balance um, genuine terror and fear with you know, approachability for like the younger audience. I think he's, he really, he really chiseled out a good market for that, for the Sarah Jane adventures. A lot of, a lot of us watch the Sarah Jane adventures, you know, most uh, admittedly, mostly because of the, the doctor who direct doctor who connection mm. with Sarah Jane Smith, but it was a legitimately good show. And, and at times you sort of had to think like, this is, this is for children. This is going out at like four in the afternoon on weekdays, you know, as children are coming home from school, they're watching this and it's, it's turning into like at times people are preferring some stories of that to like series four of Dr. Who. Mm. So I, I think, I think he has that experience of sort of appealing to, to both young and older audiences, which would really help. 
I think he'd be great, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think he knows exactly what he's doing, so... And he also knows... He very much knows what works. So I think he would balance what he would want to do with what he knows would work and with what he knows the BBC wants. I think he'd be the perfect candidate, to be absolutely frank. J.R., no, back along, you were very enthusiastic about Chris Chibnall's rise because he'd not really been that well thought of from his early stuff like 42. But certainly from Series 7 and onwards, he really seemed to pick up the pace. Yeah. And after the success of things like uh, Broadchurch, Stanley's risen quite a lot. He's too busy elsewhere, though. Mm -hmm. he He's not in contention. I don't think he's remotely <laughs> in contention. So? No, I don't think there's a chance in hell it would be Chris Chibnall. Not... No. Whoa! Oh, I apologise. Because... <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> But not because I wouldn't want it it's to It's Chris be. Chibnall. <laughs> <laughs> What's this about me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But not because I wouldn't want him to be. I think he's the kind of person who'd rather not run a show like that, to be perfectly frank. I think he'd rather be developing his own series. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, after the success of Broadchurch, he already had um, The Great Train Robbery underway, and now mm -hmm. he's working on the second series of Broadchurch, and I've no doubt that after the second search of series of Broadchurch comes out, he'll have something else. He's He reminds me, this is going to sound really mad, of David Fincher. This film yeah, it does sound quite mad. <laughs> but, <laughs> but David Fincher, the film director, yeah, he very famously balances a, what he calls a personal project with mm -hmm. what he describes as a public project, a money mm -hmm. project. So yeah. he'll do something like The Game which is mm. Hollywood movie, Hollywood script. He gets paid rather nicely for that, and that allows him to go off and probably take a pay cut in order to make a film that he wants to make. Yeah. And that would be The Fight Club. Mm -hmm. So every time he makes the uh, something like The Game, he can make something like The Fight Club. Mm. Now, Chris Chip... But, but, but the point is, he chooses. He chooses his next project according to the criteria of what he needs the next project to be. Chris Chibnall... He'd like, he's the kind of person who likes to choose his next project. You stick him on Doctor Who for, say, an, uh, something like four years, he's never choosing his next project because his next project is always the next series of Doctor Who. I couldn't see Chris Chibnall being tied down in that kind of a way. But surely Doctor Who is the series that gives you that ultimate flexibility. It gives you all the genres to play It with. doesn't, though, does it? It gives your guest writers all the genres to play with and if you're the showrunner you have to write the introduction episodes and the finale episodes and do what you like with those episodes but as we know from the last eight years of reading fans on forums and on the <laughs> social networks complaining about it the introductions and the finales there's only so much variety you've got with those episodes yeah, I guess. Mm -hmm. One one last thing about uh, along those lines, uh, and to do with Mark Gatiss, is that I think Mark Gatiss has such a varied career that I think he'd have to stop too many threads of that career to sort of be showrunner on Doctor Who. You know, yeah. he he acts. Um, yeah, he does these little passion projects from time to time, like um, like Adventure in Space and Time, or the 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 uh, the one where he went to the moon, um, the Jules Verne one. Yeah, the first men in the moon. First men in the moon. Yeah, yeah, you know, like and the horror documentaries, and and you know, he's he sort of has his 
you know, his fingers in a lot of pies, shall we say? Mm. And I think I think he enjoys that too. I'm putting, I'm I'm, I'm making his decisions for him here, but I <laughs> I, I think he enjoys that element of his career uh, too much, perhaps, to sort of give up mm. all of it to become tied to one specific it takes, franchise. It takes a certain kind of person, a certain kind of mindset to want to give yourself over to something completely, that completely, for that amount of time. This is why I think Stephen Moffat keeps um, Sherlock going on the side as a kind of pressure valve mm-hmm. so that it's not 100% Doctor Who 100% of the time. I think that would drive him mad. But you know, uh, Go on, sorry, Jeff, go I, on. I would say that if there's anything that's going to make Gatiss go with one thing, it would be Doctor Who. Hmm. I, I mean, while I agree with you, Stephen, I think that uh, I, I just... I can't imagine that if he was offered that, that he would turn it down. I can't imagine that. But you know what? It's not quite. It's not quite like, say, an actor who is a fan of Doctor Who being offered a role in Doctor Who, or the role of the Doctor. Somebody like Mark Gatiss. He's written now what six episodes? Something like that. S- something like six or seven episodes, including what he's got coming up, to be offered the role of running it. Well, he's already written more than half a dozen episodes. He's already got that on his CV. But it might possibly be, because it's not like being offered the role of the Doctor, where he wouldn't turn that down. But it might be that Mark Gatiss might say, well, I could take over running Doctor Who, but I already write it, and I do the other things I like to do. Yeah, I don't I don't think there's logic involved. I, I yeah, really don't. Sweet deal, though. It's a pretty sweet deal. He writes like, like you said, two episodes a year, and that's pretty much what Moffat does already. Except he doesn't have to have the the pressure of of running the entire show. Yeah. Hmm. And Mark Gatiss strikes me in sort of social media terms. He's quite a funny bloke because he's got all these things on the go, and he's always sort of turning up with something new. But actually, when it comes to the social networking and all that kind of stuff, he's a very low profile. Mm-hmm. very private guy in certain respects. And Stephen Moffat's a lot more private than Russell T. Davis was, but Stephen Moffat looks like Russell T. Davis compared to Mark Gatiss. Maybe Gatiss wouldn't like to be that much in the limelight. That's oh, a good possibility, too. We don't know. No. All I know is that all the logic is out the window for some of these, uh, like Moffat is a fan and Gatiss is a fan, etc. I, I just think that CV's... Uh, are not really uh, applicable not applicable to what these guys where these guys are in their careers etc and uh, i don't know i i guess i guess we'll we'll end up seeing uh, down the road but uh i I find it hard to believe he'd turn it down well let's face it i'm not sure he'd be offered it but i find no yeah if you took a straw poll of the four of us in this room and said, which one of you guys would turn down the chance to be the showrunner on Doctor Who if it was offered to you? <laughs> I think we'd all come up with the same answer, wouldn't we? Oh, absolutely. I'd take it, but then I'd be pooping myself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> God, how am I going to do this? It's like, yeah. I mean, it, it looks like an immensely difficult job and a lot of pressure, but I'm, I mean, yeah. The, these guys are writers, producers actors and fans of the show all at the same time so i do want it to be a fan though i think it will be yeah i mean i think it will always be a fan now maybe to a greater or lesser degree than say the people who have been doing it previously but i think the showrunner will have to always be a fan now almost Mm -hmm. 
I don't think it I don't think it's necessary. I'm not saying I think it's necessary. I just think the way the show's set up now is that you'd have somebody who has whose head is fifty percent fan, so knows what they'd want to do with it, and fifty percent television executive, so knows what they need to do with it. Yeah, definitely. Somebody who appreciates the history of the show. I, I think that if there is no appreciation of the history, then I probably wouldn't want that person. So Well, let's face it, the history of the show is fifty years of mistakes that you've learned from, fifty years of ideas that have been tested and tried out. 50 years of knowing what works and knowing what doesn't. So uh, why would you ignore 50 years of, of test bed? Oh, you wouldn't. Exactly. Okay, I've got another question. Seeing as we're on the subject of what might be coming up in Doctor Who, here's a question. Uh, I think all four of us have been, to a greater or lesser degree, not involving ourselves too much in spoilers. So... No. We're recording this uh, in June, even though it won't be going out till August. So this episode will be going out far closer to the start of Series 8 <laughs> than it's being recorded. So, the four of us here, what classic series monster that so far hasn't featured in Doctor Who and that we, from where we're sitting, don't know whether or not it might be featuring in Doctor Who or not, you know? Which classic series monster that hasn't been used yet would you like to see in Peter Capaldi's first series? Oh, lordy. Stephen. Okay, Josh. <laughs> uh, you would start with me. I have no little no, clue. Uh, the crawls. I want the crawls back. Oh, Josh, <laughs> you're going to do give me snap moments all night. That was my answer when we had this on our podcast. <laughs> Um, I definitely want the crawls back. I love the crawls. But, uh, again, I, I don't think they were given a good start. You know what's funny is they did it for Big Finish with uh, with Tom Baker. And yeah. there was, and I listened to it, and there were so many allusions to Android Invasion that it, it almost it didn't really, it worked almost as well as Android Invasion. I didn't really like it, um, but it... I, I think it, I, I think it, I think I would like to see the anything from the Philip Hinchcliffe era. I want to see again. Um, so the crawls is my choice. Also, when they did the big finish, the crawls, and I apologize if this is a spoiler for anybody, were kind of like the ogrons in that sort of henchmen, right? Yeah, rather yeah. Than the main yeah. yeah. So I'm not going to say for whom because that right, really that would, would be a spoiler. spoiler yes. But, but the point is, what we need to see, because in the Android Invasion, the plan they came up with was... <laughs> well, well, but the new series Bonkers. has an excellent track record of taking these characters and monsters that don't really have a very well-worked-out backstory and giving them one. Yes. So the Krulls, they're kind of... They're a little bit like the Great Intelligence. They're almost a blank slate that as long as you don't um, disregard as much as you've had before, you can bring a whole lot of new stuff to and actually turn into something really interesting. Yeah, I mean, you do have just this one bit, which is um, they use science as their the basis for their military. Mm. Um, and and that's interesting, and you could take that in so many different directions. I can't believe I'm talking about the crawls. Um, well, why not? <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I think you could take that in a certain direction. I mean, just like the uh, the Usorians from um, from the Sunmakers, 
who instead of military conquest, they use financial conquest. I think that some yeah. of those things have some really interesting modern ideas that could be utilized again. Absolutely. And the other thing about the Kraals is, uh, for all the fact that they could do it a lot better these days, the design of them is actually pretty good. I'd love to see an updating of that. Not necessarily as much of an updating as the Silurians had, but the kind of updating that, say, the Sontarans yep. have had. You could do that with the Kraals and come up with something that looked amazing, I think. Agreed. Anyway, Stephen, you've had time to think now. I have. Um... I, I was thinking that if ever uh, the Doctor was sort of in, involved in a little bit of a trial or something like that, I think the Megara coming back would be fun. I'd like yeah. to see those guys floating around in CG form. Um, the that's crawl- an, yeah, mm-hmm. that's an interesting thought, actually. Something CG. Something from the classic series that they did really badly. I well, actually like the, the Megara. Uh... The root- oh, you see, that that's another one. Thank you, Mark. Rutans, that was, yeah. That, that reminding me, because that, that's been in the back of my mind for a while. I think the way you, you make... I mean, you know, I, I love Strax as much as anyone, but mm-hmm. his effectiveness as a as in a as a, in a humorous sort of pseudo companion or friend of the Doctor, I suppose, as the BBC would have you believe. Um, I think the only way you can sort of break that mold and get back to having a Sontaran story where the Sontarans are are evil again, or yeah. at least impressive, is to bring back a Sontaran and Rutan war episode finally see that you know perhaps they're threatening earth or some other planet or something and the doctor has to sort of get in the middle of it and stop it i think that'd be really cool so the rutans coming back in tandem with a a fear a fearsome group of sontarans again i think that would be work and i want i want terrence dix to write it (laughs) (laughs) well i think that should be a story that takes place and the doctor saying how the hell do i get out of this mess i love it oh my god that's a fantastic story (laughs) <laughs> well thank you I'll never get a chance to write it so at least here it is out in public anyway wow uh, and obviously now that I've said it out loud I'll never get a chance to write it because yeah. everybody knows how it ends yeah. surely big finishes could be calling for that one that absolutely was... I love it it's a great idea oh well there you go it's been mulling in my head for a while oh, you should cut that now that should be cut from the podcast <laughs> <laughs> and you should write that well, uh, I'd love to. Nobody's ever going to ask me to. You don't get well, asked. Be- just a- begin the public campaign now. Just ask Andrew <laughs> Smith. You don't ask. You just try a lot. <laughs> yeah. Trouble is, of course, Big Finish couldn't do that because it would involve new series characters. That's true. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, you'd kind of uh, change it around a bit. It doesn't. Yeah, you could do. You could do. Anyway, um, shall we move on to another yeah. question? Let's, let's... Well, I want the plasmatons to come back. From, um, <laughs> plasmatons! From time flight. I love the plasmatons. Yeah, they were amazing. <laughs> Just think what how a... much better they could be in CG. That's true. <laughs> you could have no, no, going you... back to what, yeah, going back to what Stephen was saying, what a brilliant idea to take a character that was a decent character in the classic series, but, yeah. and the, the Rutan is a great example of this, but that they could never do justice to with mm. the old effects. And just do the character exactly the same, but give them a modern effects makeover so that actually the visual representation has ri- lived up to what was written. Mm-hmm. And let me just throw the Draconians in there for good oh, measure as well. Yeah. Mm. That's a good one. Mm. That's, that's, that's now that the Zygons are back in. I think that's the next one-off iconic 
race really not even a villain i think it would be would be really cool to see especially with especially with capaldi cutting such a uh perduian um yeah. uh, image with his uh costume and everything it would seem almost unnatural to have them reunited yeah and given his personality as well we don't know what it's going to be like but i can only assume it will be a sort of more grown-up version of the matt smith doctor mm-hmm. i don't think he's going to be as dark as people suggest. I think he will be, rather than somebody with barrels of enthusiasm running around a bit like a kid and being the Doctor at the same time, I think he'll be more like a sort of um, interestingly eccentric uncle and the Doctor character. But that's not going to be a million miles away from where Pertwee and Tom Baker were. Mm -hmm. And the Draconians fit in with that kind of sort of mindset for the series a bit more. I think if you'd have put Matt Smith up against the Draconians, it would have been chalk and cheese. I don't think the episode would have worked. Peter Capaldi, on the other hand, on the Draconians, you could see those going face-to-face, not necessarily as enemies, but disagreeing about something. Maybe there is an enemy of the Draconians that the Doctor gets involved in the fight with, and the Doctor and the Draconians go face-to-face over how to deal with it. Now, you can see that being a really interesting argument between those two. Mm. How about Agador? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I don't think the Draconians would be fighting Agador. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean like uh, yeah. Agador was wasn't really well realized in uh, in. Okay, oh. if you're gonna go down that route, Josh, you know what's coming next. <laughs> Alpha Centauri. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> A return to Peladon. Why not? Yeah. Actually, why not? Yeah, exactly. Um. You know, no. people because because no. those stories were were sort <laughs> of boring. On this one. Yeah, but they didn't have to be boring, and in forty-five minutes, they wouldn't necessarily be boring. I think you have to involve. I think um, one of the mistakes with the Rings of Akaten was that there's no human involvement apart from the Doctor and the companion. And I do think Russell T. Davis was right. You have to have human involvement now because if you're telling more emotional stories you have to give the audience somebody to root for mm-hmm. and in the rings of akaten it was very difficult to know who to care about well the kid right in theory yeah i know yeah. because she was a kid but that's like almost too much you must care about this one because she's a kid oh i'm not defending. and the audience are, i'm not and the audience at home they're like Showing their fingers to the screen, saying, "No, we won't." <laughs> which finger? Which finger? <laughs> no, and you're thinking of yeah. Nightmare and Silver, there, Jail. Yeah, well, yes, but you know what I mean. If um, yeah. if you do the Peladon story, you'd still have to have human involvement, but there's no problem there because human involvement is part of the Peladon story as it already stands. Well, you just bring David Troughton back to be the king. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Shall we move on? Sure. Yeah. Um, before, before any more of talk of Peladon returning uh, threatens to envelop this podcast. Uh, You're let's... a big fan and you know you are. <laughs> <laughs> let's move on to something completely uh, not uncontroversial or anything like that. Um, okay. Missing episodes. Uh, if If 90 missing episodes were to be returned... How would you release them all at once, chronologically, randomly? What oh, do you think? do you know what would have been a better question, Stephen? All right. All right. No, I might save it till after. Well, okay. okay. I'm only asking the questions that have miraculously yeah, no, appeared no, no. in front Fair of me, enough. you understand. Oh, I don't got think it would be chronological. I think you'd have to cherry pick. and Because, admittedly, we don't know how good these stories are going to be. We've only heard the majority of them. But 
there's a chance that there might be a few duff ones in there. So you really want to be saving your best ones oh, to the last. Doesn't matter. A S A P. I think uh, the way the Doctor Who's always been released is the model that a they'll yeah. go for, they would go for if it turned out to be thus, and b would work best. Um, you've got to alternate between the ones that people really want and the ones that they're just happy to have because they've been missing. And also, if you throw in the idea that certain stories may have more restoration required and be more difficult, like with the release of the DVDs where they saved a lot of the more troublesome ones till later in the day. Mm. So I think, I think you save something big for the end. Like, also, we want VAM. Yeah. Well, you can't, you can only afford VAM if the releases are successful enough to, uh, allow for it so if you were to release all in a huge box set there'd be no van yeah no. if you were to if you were to release all the good ones at the start the money would run out mm-hmm. for the fam at the end so you alternate and also it, it, um i know this is my question to you but it, you look at like if let's say hypothetically all the episodes were announced back in october of last year but they were going to say the first two are going to be web and enemy most people would have says, oh my heavens, Web of Fear, this is going to be fantastic. Oh, what a shame they released a Duff one like Enemy of the World because that had, had almost zero standing in fandom up to that point. All of a sudden, Enemy of the World becomes like one of the greatest things seen in the last 50 years of Doctor Who. And the Web of Fear has really nowhere else to go, um, mm, but yeah, slightly down in people's estimation. So we can't even... I can't even judge some of these stories without having seen some of their better episodes or some of their episodes at all. I, I think, and you know, the other—I'll just say this quickly, and then the other thing about the way they did that—if they'd have announced a hundred episodes and put two up for sale at the same time with DVDs coming rather shortly afterwards, yeah, people would not have bothered with Enemy of the World on iTunes. Mm. No. They'd have said, "Okay, I'll do Web of Fear straight away," but there's going to be a lot of stories, so I'll just pick up the DVD of Enemy. of... You're stabbing yourself in the foot doing it like that because people just aren't going to spend the money. Mm-hmm. I, I, and and, and oh, <laughs> now we're all jumping over. <laughs> Poor Marcus is like getting shuffled down the queue now. Um, but Josh, you were about to say. I I think what you do is you and this is this is just dreaming. Okay, so they they wouldn't do it like this. But I, I I like the idea of releasing everything via iTunes first, and then oh, yeah. what you, mm-hmm. and then what you do is. You release DVDs with VAM later. That way, yeah, that yeah. way, people can get the extra value out of the VAM and also purchase it twice. I think that there's value in doing both, um, especially and- if because of the VAM, the DVD is going to be that much later, nine or twelve months, that it makes it really worth buying the iTunes release yeah. first. Yeah, and yes. and also a lot of people just want to watch the episodes and don't care about VAM and don't care about you know having their DVD shelves look perfect as well. And also the great thing that I loved about the iTunes thing is that it gave it gave everyone like that first everyone got it at the same time. You know, everyone yeah. had it at the you know, you didn't have to go down to the shop or hope that the delivery driver is going to deliver your DVD at the same time. There's a certain immediacy to iTunes um that was that was thrilling on October. There was 9th. no special download code given out at Comic Con that no. the rest of us didn't get. <laughs> no, exactly. Okay, I refuse to have anybody else talk until Mark says what he was gonna say like three people ago. 
Well, no, I, I, well, I kind of said. But before you say it, really Mark, well, just. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hate you, Jay. No, go on. Um, no, I. Well, like I said before, I think um, the chronological thing wouldn't really work. So I think you've got to cherry pick and put the, the spread the best ones out. But I totally agree with Josh about the whole idea of the iTunes first, and then having that build up. So you've generated the the income to get the van onto the DVD and make it a more um, successful release for the DVD. I think it's definitely the way to go. Here's the... There are a lot of iTunes haters out there. Simon, who's a regular on this show, will kill me uh, <laughs> if I suggest it goes on iTunes first because he absolutely hates Apple with a vengeance. But, there are a lot of people like that. But But for people like him... You know, you'd still have to wait X amount of months for the DVD anyway. Mm -hmm. So you're not lost out by having it on iTunes first. Here's my question then. The question I just for a second thought Stephen was going to ask. If 90 episodes were announced at being recovered tomorrow, which seven would you forego? (laughs) Would you forego? Do do I have to forego anything? Yeah. (laughs) If if there's 97 episodes missing oh, now, okay. if they announce right. 90, which seven would be the ones that you'd happily sacrifice? Oh, boy, oh, boy. Well, oh, God. without wishing to go down the obvious route, um, Space Pirates sounds pretty no, dull. No, I want the Space The Space Pirates oh. has built up such a legacy that it demands to be seen now. <laughs> Are you hoping it's going to be like a gunfighter's turnaround where actually people think actually it is really good you know what i i want in a way uh, <laughs> this is going to sound really <laughs> cruel of me really cruel those seven episodes Don't you dare say power all seven episodes of marco polo the only story oh. missing completely <laughs> from the archives is all of marco polo and then it just becomes mm. this legendary piece of television that uh that everyone has to, you know the, the one that was of all the missing episodes still missing was you sold, know, the sold the yeah. most around the world, and it's still missing after that. I think it would build. I think it would be almost <laughs> a really awful, cruel joke. Josh, what would you sacrifice? Oh, I don't want to sacrifice anything. Um, I, Do you I, want me to help you out? No, then? no, That's a really obvious answer. Well, I mean, I, I think that uh, I, I, I'm not dying for the Highlanders. I'm also not dying for uh, the smugglers. Um, oh no, Josh! Bad, bad boy. Go and stand <laughs> in the corner. No, 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 no. I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I think that there are certain ones that that I've, I've seen on reconstructions that are not, I'm not dying for. Um, so I think that that that's probably the direction I would head. No. Can we not just bung a few pertwees away and and keep all of them? No. Nope. Nope. Shall I tell you what we should have said? Okay, tell us what we should have said. Go on. We should have said the Moon Base 1 and 3, the Ice Warriors 2 and 3, Reign of Terror 4 and (laughs) 5. We should have said the ones they've animated already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Okay, here's another question, entirely new question. Right. And this is, and this is another one that we had for the podcast, more or less. And it's another, isn't Stephen Moffat doing a bad job question. And the question is, should stories be written without recourse to a list of ingredients? Do you think, in other words, the sort of list of ingredients way of writing works? Oh, it did Planet of Fire. on the writer, doesn't it? 
Yeah, or most of any other Doctor Who stories written in the classic series. I mean, pretty much, unless you know what, I think we should have a, uh, an episode set in Antarctica or something like that. I think every story sort of starts off as a, here's what we want in it, go and write yeah. it sort of thing. Oh, well, there's the answer. Yes, of yeah. course the list of ingredients works. It's always worked in storytelling, and it always will work in storytelling. Yeah, because it gives you it gives you you know posts. It sets up the posts for the story that you sort of have to work around. You know, like on those cooking shows where they open up the thing and literally the list of ingredients, and it gives you four wildly diverse things. Make something interesting with it, as opposed to like, I think we should just have something where Daleks fight Cybermen for fifty minutes or something like that. Then you, it just becomes nothing. There's no story behind it at all. I, I think you can have too many ingredients though, and I, I think that some of the uh, the, the reason I bring up Planet of Fire was th- that uh, JNT spoke about that in his memoirs. How we were, we were handing off, uh, you know, several different uh, ingredients. You know, the master had to be in it. Uh, Turlo was going to be leaving. Uh, Perry was going to be coming, and you had to get rid of Chameleon. I mean, all of those things you had to do, and it didn't matter what the story was. Just make it all happen. Uh, I think can be constricting. Um, I think it depends on the writer. I think a good or a certain type of writer will allow that to fire his imagination. I don't think Peter Grimwade was a terribly good writer, so I think perhaps the ingredients hindered him more than it helped. Perhaps. Yeah, perhaps. Certainly Robert Holmes didn't like all the ingredients with uh, with the five doctors that he had to go no, that he true. had to go through and it might be the but best writer has... ever. Yeah, but he had lots of other stories where he was given a whole list of ingredients, and look what he made of things like Terror of the Autons and the Time Warrior. Oh, definitely. But I think that, and this goes back to my point, which is I, I think that there's a limitation. If you're going to get on that cooking show, hmm. Chopped or whatever, if your basket has more than four items and you have ten items in that basket, then it's going to be very difficult to create that meal. Yeah, fair enough. Josh, would you like to see more alien planets in the new series, or do you think the balance is okay? Um, I think the balance is okay. I know that's going to sound strange, but um, I, I think that they've done a lot of work on trying to build out more alien worlds versus the, the way it was at the beginning of the new series. Um, as a matter of fact, um, I, I'm finding that uh, a couple of the alien... As much as we ask for all the alien worlds... Uh, a couple of the alien world uh, stories in the in the previous series aren't my favorites. Oh, Nightmare in Silver and the Rings of Akatem. You got it. Oh my God! Yeah. You could. Ju- what did you just go right inside my head and grab those? It's incredible. Yes. <laughs> How did you guess, Joe? Well, it's pretty obvious. Really, wasn't <laughs> yeah. it? But Stephen, how about you? Do you think the balance is good, or do you think? There should be more outer space, say, in Doctor Who. Uh-huh. See, now, planets is one thing. Outer spacey is another. And I uh. love spaceships. I think uh, I would love a good space opera uh, episode of some sort. I think that'd be... We haven't had a lot of, like, spaceships chasing other spaceships, really, which which is something I, I deeply desire. I, I enjoyed the, the space station aspect of some of the RTD years, but the difference between the Moffat and the RTD eras, I think, is that whenever... Uh, rtd went to earth all of earth was threatened publicly everyone knew about it and it was tough to sort of go anywhere dramatically as opposed to moffat you know there are stories that are set on earth but don't necessarily revolve around the fact that they are uh earth-based and and it sort of it sort of happens to a small select 
uh, group, yeah. you know, like Hyde is an interesting story because it takes place on Earth in 1974. Mm-hmm. But that's just a setting, you know. It's just a happens to be a setting for something that uh, you know it doesn't it doesn't affect anyone else apart from like two or three characters, which is excellent. See, I'd be prepared to lose a few uh, alien planet stories because I really like the historicals and even something like Hyde that you mentioned there, although it's relatively recent history, it's still it's got that unique thing that the BBC does really well, which is period drama and i think that's got a lot of cachet and i for me that is the sort of thing that i would want to see on screen uh, some of my favorite stories from from the philip hinchcliffe era like kind of took place in just like one house so like hyde mm-hmm. really feels like like that a little bit like image of the fendal yeah. or or um mm-hmm. or pyramids of mars and so on and so forth i think that stuff is is much more effective i, I agree i mean that mm-hmm. that stuff is is very fun to watch actually if you think about it if you go back into classic Doctor Who and think about the stories that really stand out from when you were a kid, they're things like, and the Android Invasion would be your first story, and that kind of almost is, but things like Pyramids of Mars, The Talents of Wang Chiang, all those unit stories with John Pertwee, yeah. they're all set on Earth. Doctor Who works better set on Earth, which doesn't mean it should always be set on Earth, obviously. It's nice for a bit of variety, but yeah. I think I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Variety's one thing, but yeah. biting off more than you can chew and throwing in yeah. things like the Rings of Akaten and Nightmare in Silver is not necessarily always a good idea. It, it's tough to build a world in 45 minutes is the problem. Uh, yeah. you mm-hmm. know, and, and to give you characters to care about. And, and so re- the easy way out, or the, the more comfortable way out perhaps in the past is sort of have human colonies on other planets and sort of, you know, the settings changed, but the human interaction hasn't. Uh, happiness that's... Patrol! <clears throat> Paradise Towers. <laughs> but this is what um, Russell T. Davis uh, so wanted to do with his Doctor Who in that he, he would have that. In order to have that shortcut to being able to establish an alien planet in 45 minutes, you do put the human race there. Yeah, And that's what works. Mm-hmm. It really does, yeah. Go on then, Stephen. Hit us with another question. Yeah, right. My my list is dwindling, but um, but since we're we we always talk about writers at some point, I might as well ask, uh, which which classic series writer from any era would you like to living or living or, or dead to or have seen pen an episode of the new series? Oh, I'm gonna let the other two answer first. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Mark. Um. It's a fairly obvious one, really. Robert Holmes. Naturally. I'd love to see what he could do with a a modern script and a budget that would actually do justice to the ideas. I don't think Robert Holmes' scripts in the classic series were very far away from the modern series as it stands, were they? Well, I suppose maybe not. Uh, or... Oh, no, no, I'm not saying that as a negative against mm. it. I'm saying, you know, I think he'd fit in perfectly. Or if you're going a bit more left field, maybe someone like... Left field or left wing, Mark? Dennis Spooner. <laughs> Malcolm oh, Hulk. Malcolm Hulk. Yeah, all right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Or Dennis Spooner. Oh, Dennis or Spooner. Eric Sayward. I think he was awesome. I think he's very underrated. <laughs> okay, you get off now. Josh. <laughs> Josh, your turn. Yeah, so, um, of course, uh, Andrew Smith. Uh, I think he would be great. <laughs> of course. Um, but uh, Terrence Dix, um, I think mm. I would love to see what he would do with a modern story. Um, and he's still he's still alive. 
So mm-hmm. <laughs> that, there's always that possibility. I would love to have him do something um, along the lines of a modern show and see what he could do. I, I know that, um, you know, they couldn't do his version of the Brain of Morbius because they couldn't get, you know, it was about a robot uh, instead of Solon. Um, I think that he's mm-hmm. he's got some great futuristic ideas that, that could be realized with a modern um, with the modern abilities of, of production. But he wrote he wrote one of the um, short reads, didn't he? Mm-hmm. The third one, yeah. I think. Yes. Was it third or the second one? Mm, and that is one, and that right? is yeah. basically Terence Dick's writing in the format of the new series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which gives which just kind of proves that he could do it he, if if he can write in the format of any part of the series. That that's that's why he's he's amazing. Is that he can he he can write a second Doctor story, but he also can write a fifth Doctor story. You know, I just think that somebody who has that ability to uh, cross uh, the uh, the echelons of the years is uh, and and the type of doctor. Um, you know, certain certain writers can can write for certain doctors, but I think in in Terrence Dick's case, he can write for any of the doctors. So that's why I'd be interested to see what he would do. Good choice. Oh, I suppose I've got to name someone now, haven't I? You better add, mm-hmm. haven't you? Yeah, but you named them all between the pair. I've already of, taken yeah? Eric's Hayward, Sorry, <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll throw one in there that Mark Go was on, mentioning man. mentioning budgets. Uh, I admit this is a question that we asked on on Radio Free Scarl not too long as a re- ago as a recording, but one that I didn't say then, but that that sort of prompted me to say it now with the basis of uh, of budgets. Bob Baker and Dave Martin, who are always oh. having to have their stories curtailed <laughs> thanks to budgets. It'd be interesting. Okay, you've got yeah. the CGI budget now. Let's see what you can do. Oh, yes. That's a great point. <laughs> <laughs> and they do write fun Doctor Who with big ideas. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. is the, yeah, which is exactly right. That's exactly what they could do with these days. Yeah, I think between the other writers we've already named I think we've kind of pretty much got that one nailed down. Well, how about Douglas Adams? Well, yeah. Yeah, on, yeah, yeah. on the RFS one, I think we, we talked about mm-hmm. Holmes obviously, Dix. Uh, Chris Boucher was another one and Douglas oh, Adams. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Chris yeah. Boucher. You the also could get him have. now too, because he's still with us. Mm-hmm. I wonder how Chris Boucher would adapt to writing for the modern series actually. Because some of those other writers you've mentioned, Terence Dix, Robert Holmes, Bob Baker and Dave Martin, I could see them slotting right in perfectly. Don't know about Malcolm Hulk and Dennis Spooner and Chris Boucher though. I'm not sure I could see I'm not saying I'm not saying any of the less of them as writers, but I'm not sure I could see them adapting to the way the modern series is done so much as the other three. Yeah. Hmm. Well, <laughs> we'll never know. No, yeah. Add, add, in, yeah. add in a little communism and maybe um, maybe Malcolm <laughs> Holt can write. Yeah. Malcolm Holt, too, too, too many and too strong ideas to fit it all into 45 minutes, probably. Mm-hmm. Sad thing is that Malcolm Holt pretty much already wrote a story and it was called... Um... Uh, this, those, that Sontaran two-parter because thanks to his work on the Sontarans in the 70s, you can't really do any other story that would do no, justice right. to their origins. So, so Chris Chibnall pretty much... Oh, the much, Silurians, you mean? Yeah, the yeah pretty much had to, to yeah. re... Other than I cannot think of either of the episode titles right now. Hungry um, Earth. Cold, Hungry Earth. Yeah, Hungry Earth and Cold and Blood. Cold you know, Blood. those ones are pretty much the, the Doctor Who and the Silurians retold in a, new, in a new format, you know? 
Right, I have one question left, so shall I save that for last? Have you got anything else you'd like to ask, Stephen, or should well, we get... You know what, I, I, I was saving a, a nice, uh, just an easy one for the last one, just, just for okay. fun, because I see that you uh, you always post pictures of stuff like this, JR, on Facebook oh, no, and everything. Sa- save it then, and I'll, I'll do this sure? one. Okay. Yeah, because this one's more of an involved one, so All I'll right. save you one as a fun one for the end. Now, this one came from The Great Intelligence. I don't know if you remember this one, Mark, but this ended mm-hmm. up being quite an interesting discussion. Does our fandom have an end date? In other words, are we going to arrive at an age where we're too old still to be fans in the way that we'll still go to conventions, still log on to the internet and look for spoilers and news and go on the forums, all that kind of thing? Are we going to get to an age where we're too old to be the kind of Doctor Who fans we are now? That's a great question. Well, uh, no, it, it, no, it's a great question because, like, I can't, I couldn't have foretold that I'd be so involved with this in my forties. Yeah, you know, to begin with. So, if you'd asked me that question at sixteen, I never would have thought that that it would interest me in my forties. Mm-hmm. So, how can I speak to my seventies or my eighties? As far as, you know, are we still going to be meeting at Gallifrey 1, Stephen, uh, in, in, <laughs> in, in our 70s and 80s? And, and I mean, I can't say that that wouldn't happen. As a matter of fact, I, I think it will. Um, I, I, see, I see no reason why my fandom at this point would go away. Um, I, I've already been through my wilderness years. I, I think that there, yeah. there is a certain time in your life where you have to put it down. Um, yeah. And it, it just, you know, for me, I, I think um, I think this is the rest of my life. I, I can't imagine um, it, it will go away. I, I can't imagine. You always have times where you're perhaps not quite as into it as you were another time, but you tend to stick with it, or I do anyway. It's a hobby, isn't it? It is. It is. It's like it it's, it's it's part of it's part of uh, your world. It's part of your person. Um, you can change your job. You can change the house that you live in. You can change all those things. But what you're not going to change is like the the pieces that are part of you. Um, they get make, they get modified over time, no doubt. But you know, as as long as uh, there's somebody to talk to about it, I think that I, I'll I'll maintain it. Wow, good yeah. answer. I'm I'm looking at you know I. Many reasons why I think it will go on. I, when I went to left home for college back when I was what nineteen or twenty, I decided, you know what, I'm going to build one last Lego project, and I built a house and left it there at my parents' house and left all the Lego and just went off to school thinking that was it. Now I'm entering adulthood, and I look to my right, and there yeah. is a kitchen table that is enveloped with a giant Lego baseball stadium that it took me the better part of a year to make. I think these things are just part of of who I am and doctor who's never really gone away. Um, it's just, it'll always be there in some way. And my appreciation of it will be. And the thing is, is though that the four of us have, have, you know, podcasting, uh, amongst other things to sort of, to be our thread through doctor who, you know, we, we get to talk once a week for a couple of hours about doctor who with other people. Like it's almost a guarantee. It's, you know, we have to, to keep the listeners happy in a way sometimes. Mm. So, uh, whereas others, I think sort of have to like look out, have to search out for some of these things and like, what can we do to, to share my love of doctor who and everything, but we sort of already have that. So I think for us, if podcasting goes away, it'll be, 
it'll be interesting to see what I would do to sort of maintain my fandom of Doctor Who because it's sort of that's sort of been the the through thread through everything for the past eight years now. I think even in the the sort of so called wilderness years, it never really went away. You know, you had your the novels, you had the audios. Um, and I always kept going back to it. And, of course, they had to start releasing the DVDs as well, uh, which made me want to revisit the older ones. Um, so, no, I don't, I don't think I can ever foresee a time where I would want to drop it. Mm. I suppose the fact, show has to carry on, but, you know, anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, in, in, I think in 50 years we should do a 50 years reunion of this podcast with these four, <laughs> <laughs> with these four podcasters. <laughs> Stephen, then, one last question. All right, uh, <laughs> just to close out on favorite or least favorite bits of Doctor Who merchandise. Because I know, JR, oh. you've collected a lot, as I see pictures on your Facebook from time to time. Oh, yes. The, but my favorite thing was always the Weetabix cards. Everybody knows this. Well, the one I have You're the, a weird man. Yeah, but it's the one I have the fondest memory of and that's always kind of lived with me. Although those uh, five-inch Daleks, they're fantastic. I love them. On the negative side, the Dapol figures were pretty ropey. Did they were. Really? The five-sided TARDIS console was <laughs> just bad. Yeah. But is there anything that you've actually sort of seen in a shop where you've thought, well, that... where you've Rather than just not liked it, where you've sort of actively disliked it. Well, you have to remember that these things are really aimed primarily at kids. Yeah. So... You know whether I think it's great or not is not really the the point. Um, I tell you what, I, I got. think the Dalek sec mask thing was pretty awful. Oh, <laughs> Mark! <laughs> You're I'm a human Dalek. Your inner ten year old has just caught, curled up into a ball and crawled off to the corner. <laughs> oh, I have to. Do say- you know what? Sorry, I'll just say this briefly. Okay. And I we speaking of what you know things aimed at kids. We were in Boots, and there was this little, and it was cheap, and I just saw it, and I thought, oh, I use those. I'll have that. I'll use that. It was a little expandable flannel. It was like a little Dalek flannel, and you put it in water, and it expands out to normal size. It comes rolled up into, like, it's really tiny ball. I thought, okay, that's great. And then, But I forgot. It's aimed at, like, six-year-olds, isn't it? Yep. So even when it expanded, it was about the size of my finger. <laughs> Okay, going back to the figures, <laughs> yeah. apart yeah. from the million and one different David Tennant variations there were, I think the most pointless one was the um, the frame of Cassandra yeah, without was... even Cassandra in it. There was a reason for that, though, Mark. Go on then, JR. Do, do you not know the reason for that? There I think they had millions of them and they couldn't chip, get rid of well, them. Well, Chip was on the not not Chip too many times, but Chip is, uh, Cassandra's assistant was part of that set, which is often forgotten about. I think there's a joke. Oh no, he j- came out separately. I thought he came with that actual set. Mm. No, he was separate. Uh-huh. He was separate. So what happened was um, Woolworths, which went down the tube shortly afterwards. And if this is the coincidence, I don't. Yeah. No, I don't think it is a coincidence, but I don't think it's purely because of the Doctor Who figures. I think the yeah, example of the Doctor Who figures shows the kind of thinking that was behind Woolworths that led to them going down the tubes. <laughs> Woolworths sold a lot of Doctor Who figures, and a few other places also sold a lot of Doctor Who figures. And Woolworths said to Character Options, 
okay, we'd like an exclusive line of Doctor Who figures that we can sell only in Woolworths, which will bring people into Woolworths to buy the Doctor Who figures. And Character Options said, yeah, okay, that's fine, that's fair enough. Uh, it'll cost you about £10,000 per sculpture, because that's the sort of ground cost before it goes into production of getting a figure ready. And Woolworths said, well, we can't afford £10,000 per figure. We were thinking of selling them for, you know, cheap prices. We're not going to spend that kind of... We're not going to spend that kind of money to sort of accumulate the profits back. And so Character Options said, well, your only other option is to take figures that already exist and just do some kind of slight exclusive spin on them that you can sell exclusively in Woolworths. And Woolworths said, yeah, okay, fine, what have you got? And Wool and uh, Character Options said, well, you can have a ghost gelf that glows in the dark, you can have Toby Zed with no markings on his face, and you can have Cassandra after she's exploded. And Woolworths said, yeah, fine, we'll have those, we'll sell them exclusively in our shops. Oh! And then they went... <laughs> And then they went bust. Of course they did. And you bought one, didn't you, JR? I bought one when they were just before <laughs> Wolves went, when they were about two quid. Mm-hmm. All right, can I can I tell you the ones that I love, the ones yeah, I hate? Yeah, sorry, and, Josh. And, and, we... and the and the ones and one I want to be out there at some point. So I've got three yes. things. Um, the one I love is the um, the box set of all the doctors. Okay, and they're yeah. like the seven inch or something like that. All all twelve, good call, or all eleven doctors. I have that. It's in a little TARDIS case. I have yet mm-hmm. to yeah. take them out. Okay, oh, me either. Okay, um, the one I have the hate the least. I gotta say very very quietly because I was given a Doctor Who's My Little Pony. Uh, okay. <laughs> all right. Oh, that sounds given. great. Yeah. Okay. So I have that. That's still in the box as well. Now, the one I want, okay, is a real-life-sized key to time that actually oh. goes together with the tracer <laughs> in it. Wow. Okay? That's what, what I think somebody... He's making Tom Baker noises. Somebody has to get that. Somebody has to build, make that work because I want a key to time to put on my desk. I want a life-size Mary Tam. <laughs> Blow up, <laughs> doll? Yeah. <laughs> no, Mary Tam. The key to time, though, that is such an obvious idea for somebody yeah. like... I mean, it couldn't be that expensive. It's just a load of little cubes stuck together, mm. basically, isn't you, it? It's you like could make root... it a, a Lucite or something. I mean, a real size, but I want it real size. Like, I want it, you know, to be a real cube that you could actually put together. Yeah, it's a desktop. They've done the uh, cubes from uh, The Doctor's Wife. And they've done they've done the cubes from the Doctor's Wife, and they've done the modern sonic screwdrivers. They've done the old sonic screwdrivers. Why don't they do the old cube from the Key to Time? That'd be a That'd fantastic be a gr- idea. Yeah, I love it. I love. It. I would. I would actually spend on that. I mean, I'd spend a couple hundred bucks if if they would have it out there and, and available. I also, That's by the way, thing. I also yeah. have the sonic screwdriver that turns on your TV and stuff like that. It's not very good. It looks very nice, and it's got a nice little mm-hmm. case, but it's not very good. <laughs> Fair enough. Steven. I do kind of have a soft spot for the 10th planet Cybermen. Oh, yeah. I I think the um, 1980s Cybermen made very good toys, even though I think yeah. they look ridiculous on the telly. <laughs> they look like men in boiler suits. Uh, I loved them, though. Um. Yeah, me too. Me too. I love the guns out of the head. I love that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, that's like a 70s Cyberman as well. Oh, yeah. That, that's the, the, yeah those are the ones yeah, I yeah. really like. Yes. Oh, no. Those are fantastic. 
Stephen, merchandise then. Um, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't partake in a lot of it. I have to admit, I, ha- I have the Eleven Doctor set, but being a bad fan that I am, uh, they are all out of their box, and the box has long oh since been recycled. Um, because they, the doctors need to stand on my bookshelf above all the DVDs, which is where they, uh, where they currently reside. Um, I think there's the- a definite dichotomy going on in this podcast between <laughs> those who take it out of the box. And those who keep it safely tucked up inside the box. Well, it, it'll <laughs> I'll explain why in a little in a little in a little bit. Um, the oh. one that, the bits that I didn't like they sort of started coming out a little while ago, and I haven't seen much of it recently. Where this there was like a time disruptor gun or something, and then like a oh, yeah. fictitious mm-hmm. like they were sort of like making these branch off um, yeah. merchandise of like what could be in the new show, but really weren't. And I thought it's, it's mm-hmm. there's enough in Doctor Who that kids would want that is actually in the show without having to sort of create new stuff for the sake of merchandising. It just seemed a little bit iffy to me in the way of toys. Um, but uh, obviously the one that I'd want to see is, is Doctor Who Lego because uh, it, I'm a lifelong Lego fan and, and the character option stuff just is not, you know, people think that, oh, it's blocks. It, it works with Lego. It's all fine. But the, the stuff with Lego is so intricately designed that it's it's an engineering project really when you when you open up a big lego set and you and you realize what it takes to actually put together mm-hmm. a, a lego set you're going to get your wish. And you're going to get yeah. your wish. Well, perhaps by the time this comes out, uh, Lego will have decided on those two lego ideas, but I that's that's one or two lego sets. I want a full line of yeah. of lego doctor who sets and I would assuredly take them out of the box because that is what lego is meant to be done <laughs> it's meant to be built and played with and everything else and so perhaps growing up like in that mindset that I you know toys are supposed to be played with and I still think that's the case as opposed to sort of sitting in dusty boxes on shelves never do you get do you get the little character options ones then the character buildings then? I tried I get, I got a couple just to see what it was like and and the the just the police box itself was such such a frustrating experience to put together I couldn't like trying to get the doors to sort of stay as you put the roof yeah. on it was like I was ready to throw I threw it across the room I was I'm done I'm done with this it was a little police box I shouldn't be having a negative experience putting together a toy like that it looks good when it's all done but getting it there oof it's hell. Hey, don't get me wrong, Stephen. I'm going to buy the Lego as well uh, when it comes out, and I will be taking that out of the box. No doubt about it. And Good. building oh. it. Hey, and if this really takes off, that surely means there will be a, um, a Doctor Who Lego video game as well. Oh, don't tempt me. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, I think I think we've been talking for long enough. But you've, the three of you have saved me from talking entirely to myself all afternoon. Well, well we appreciate it. I could do, do this all day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, talking to myself all afternoon is what usually happens when I have the regulars on. <laughs> That's cold. <laughs> That's oh, cold. <laughs> uh, Stephen, Josh, Mark, thank you for joining me. Thank, thank you, JR. Thank you. And... Um, And well, until next time then, uh, I was JR, and we will speak again soon.
Bannerman Road. Road. <laughs>